This podcast is brought to you in part by Specialties. Are you in a band that wants merch, but you're not sure where to go? Are you looking for great quality and affordable pricing? Do you have a design that you'd like to put on a koozie for your favorite consumable beverage? How about office swag for your job or giveaway items for your events? Okay, you get the point. Look no further than special tees for all of your heart's printing desires. This is not my magnum opus listeners can act now and get 10% off your first order if you tell them could be better sent you. Visit their website at www.special-tees.com or use the link in the show notes to get the conversation started. You can even call ahead and visit their showroom to see the types of products they offer. Again, telling them could be better sent you via email, phone call, or carrier pigeon will get you that 10% off your first order. That's special-tees.com. Special Tees. If you haven't worked with them, they want to work with you. This is Not My Magnum Opus is proud to be a part of the Could Be Better podcast network. We're passionate about creating and using these platforms to dive into topics such as exploring lo-fi, impulsive, small, and otherwise overlooked artworks and creative practices, what happened in the world this week and how to laugh through or at it, and hearing stories from musicians from all walks of life. Check out these podcasts, Could Be Better, This Is Not My Magnum Opus, and The Weekly with Kiki, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit couldbebettermeh.com slash podcasts in the show notes to see the current shows on the Could Be Better podcast network. Come join us as we discover more about ourselves, the community around us, and maybe even something worth sharing. Or not. Now, here's our show. Hello and welcome to This Is Not My Magnum Opus, a podcast about small and lo-fi artworks, creative practice, and what it means to be an artist. I'm your host, Nicole Ringel, and I'm here with my partner and producer, Spencer Newcomb. Hey, buddy. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Nice. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, too. You looking real nice over there on that side of the couch. Aw, thanks so <laughs> much. You're looking nice over Aww, there yourself. That's so kind. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is episode five. We're doing a 12-episode season, almost halfway. How do you feel like it's going so far? It's been lovely. Like, uh, I feel like so far, it's really just been an opportunity to get to know uh, more intentionally to a greater depth. So far, a lot of artists that we already knew. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We kind of intentionally started that way um, because we're both brand new at this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, I think... Especially in the beginning, um, I was really not caught up, but nervous about, you know, serving each artist mm-hmm. that we interviewed um, with my best self, right. <laughs> right? And like asking the right questions and like being um, like the, the the right energy to kind of coax a story out mm-hmm. <laughs> in like an engaging way. And um, yeah, I think like there's definitely been a trajectory of like becoming more comfortable and present in each space yeah. that I hold mm-hmm. with each person who comes on. Um, and I feel like uh, I'm getting there with it. Like, yeah. certainly not perfect. Right. Uh, I, you know, as many people are, I feel like I'm hypercritical of myself <laughs> and I can hardly listen to an episode back <laughs> after we put it out into the world. But um, no, it's been lovely. Yeah, you're doing a great job. Aw. Yeah, we're like, yeah, brand new. Uh, it's a learning curve. Uh, and that's that's part of the fun, um, mm-hmm. is putting something out there in in the world with uh, a motive and a and a goal uh, to serve the people that we have on uh, because we love and care about the arts here in you know our local scene and abroad. Uh, so, you know, the goal is to uplift those artists, and mm-hmm. we're just learning how to do it better and better. I super appreciate all of the folks who have been on uh, thus far and who are coming on this season. Love you guys. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming on. <laughs> we um, appreciate your time and energy. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, episode five, who are we talking to this week? So this week, uh, we're talking to Mitchell Noah. Um, if you listened last week, uh, we interviewed Cheen and Imi, mm-hmm. um, ceramicist and artist, a lovely human being. Um, this week, we're interviewing Mitchell, who's the other side of spatial oddities. Mm-hmm. Um, they're married. And so, uh, you know, they've always been kind of like artistic collaborators with each other. So definitely sh- uh, check out their shared work, spatial 
facial oddities, you can order like a beautiful mug mm. or, um, you know, a hand blown glass goblet. Mm. <laughs> you know, their work is is pretty amazing. But yeah, so I met both of them um, in grad school. So we were in the same program together. Um, Mitchell is originally from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And then you know, after he got his BFA, he moved to Bowling Green, Ohio to get his master's degree in glass blowing. So then after he finished up that, he and Imi moved to Baltimore together um, to go to uh, UMBC in their intermedia and digital art program. Mm-hmm. And as I said, that's where that's where I met them. Um And it's funny because, um, you know, whenever we did the kind of like artist talk activities where we had to like talk about our creative interests, Mitchell would always talk about that he had glass blowing as this craft Mm -hmm. that um, was a part of his creative identity. But I never saw it um, in his studio or in the work that he produced in that program. Mm -hmm. And so I knew it was a part of his life because, you know, like their house is just filled with the most beautiful functional (laughs) objects, right? Um, But I was really curious about the intersection of those two kind of um, practices that I saw as kind of separate. Yeah. Uh, Because when you met, he was working on his second master's. That's wild. And his work in the program was super interesting, Mm -hmm. too. Um, A lot of it had to do with uh, kind of like maintenance work and Mm. uh, definitely kind of reacting to the city of Baltimore, Mm -hmm. which if you're familiar with it, there's all sorts of blight and neglect in the city that's super apparent when you're, (laughs) you know, traveling through it. That's for so many loaded reasons. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like he had this like awesome project that I think we talk about in the interview that was a broom with three handles. So it required some amount of um, collaboration and um, like understanding and trust between three people to actually actually use use it as a broom. Um, And he did this cool performance where like some people from our program were the other two people kind of pushing (laughs) the the broom. But yeah, a lot about kind of imagining utopias and considering like labor and maintenance work and that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, I never saw like his thesis didn't have glass in it. Mm. Uh, as far as I remember, I think, I think I'm correct in that. But anyway, so it was, it was really interesting to kind of talk to him about, um, the kind of intersection of those various materials. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Like after, after the interview, we were talking about that, how there is some connectivity for, for Mitchell in a lot of things where, um, yeah, for like not seeing his glass blowing, it's certainly like his mindset is, is like, cross-disciplinary like he takes inspiration from music and Mm -hmm. applies it to glass blowing like he he takes inspiration from a lot of different places like he talks about drawing and like how that kind of led him into sculpture and and yeah i think that there's some definitive through lines that i don't want to give away too much right (laughs) i will say like as a musician uh i loved this interview because Mm -hmm. he does uh he pulls a lot of inspiration from from music Mm-hmm. The way that he talks about glass blowing uh, as like a communal project, because mm-hmm. I didn't know this. When you blow glass, you have to blow with other, other folks. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's that's like the standard. So uh, it's like engaging in this repetitive process. That's yeah. like you know we're showing up to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, it's... which is like a very similar to like being in a band creating music, uh, and you're you know he talks about striving for that perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, that is a through line with musicians for sure. Is like you want that perfect moment, you want that feeling of everything aligning perfectly, and you have to rely on other folks to get there if you're in a band. Um, so I thoroughly enjoyed uh, that aspect of the interview. For sure, yeah. I think we can get right to it. Yeah, just a couple of things. Um, we did post pictures of uh, Mitchell's work, so. Uh, you can either follow the link at the bottom of the show notes to his website. Um, I think we'll link to Spatial Oddities as well. Um, and then we also have some images posted on our Instagram if you'd like to check that out. We're at This Is Not My Magnum Opus. Uh, and then also um, we had a couple of technical issues, so um, there will be a couple of clips in the audio here and there. Hello. Hi. Welcome to This Is Not My Magnum Opus. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for um, making the trip down to the studio today um, to talk about uh, your work with us. Yeah. Um, so to jump in, um, usually I always like to start the 
these conversations with uh, a question to kind of get at your kind of origins of your creativity. Uh, so I like to ask what the first experience you had of um, either feeling like or like you wanted to become an artist. Uh, yeah, something I think about a lot, actually, which is um, I used to draw figures when I was a little kid. Little, like maybe seven or eight or nine. I don't know when it started. But, you know, my parents, especially my mom, always encouraged um, me to practice art. And drawing was a thing. I remember getting like a drafting table for Christmas one year, mm-hmm. which I, you know, became a workhorse. I got a lot of use. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that there was like one moment I always remember, actually two moments. And they're all they're both related, um, which was in uh, 1995, Batman Forever came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember all of the like merchandising that came out with it, and uh, that got me really excited. Like I, I remember seeing like Batman posing in a specific way. I was like, I have to draw that. Mm-hmm. And I remember just drawing over and over the same thing to the point where I was like, it should, it would be faster if I just kept tracing my own drawings, mm-hmm. and which is something I did. I would like just tape it to the window. Uh, like the back sliding door of my parents' house and uh, trace these Batman over and over because I kept um, fucking the faces up, mm-hmm. kept messing the, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I've kept feeling like I only had one shot to get it right. Otherwise, you could tell that I kept getting it wrong by mm-hmm. erasing the paper and to the point where some of them I just erased right through the paper. And I was like becoming such a perfectionist about it. So my mom always used to joke, like, why do you have so many... Uh, faceless Batman drawings <laughs> in your room. <laughs> uh-huh. And so at that point, I was like, it was just something I kept chasing and I and mm-hmm. became like a creative endeavor of mine was to like try and get it right, even though I never thought I did get it right. Mm-hmm. And so there, that kind of simultaneously happening when I was playing basketball, like with the Youth Optimist League, um, one of the kids that was on the team and I was not good at basketball okay I mm-hmm. played for like two years <laughs> and maybe made like six points total mm-hmm. and we lost we were like the worst team both years and my dad was a coach I don't know that that has anything to do with it probably not <laughs> <laughs> um <clears throat> he was a good coach but there was a kid on the team his older brother would come and help co- like assist in coaching and practices and stuff and he used he would draw so he I would every week would bring like this portfolio of his mm. that had drawings of basketball players in them. So again, you like these very like exaggerated poses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like asking him to, to give me a drawing of, cause I was just like, wow, he's so good. Like he's way better than me. You know, can you draw? I don't know who I asked him to draw, but uh, he gave me a drawing. And I remember I was mad because it had like a coffee stain on it mm. on the paper but he was like, look, I, you know, here's your player, whoever you wanted me to draw. And I was like, oh, no, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, the paper's not perfect. But I remember that instance of him showing me his drawings being like, okay, now, now there's like a bar to achieve, not just mm-hmm. for myself, but this guy's really good. I want to be that good. Mm-hmm. So it all started for me with just drawing and tracing my own drawings over and over, all of these figures. And I started doing figures uh, that I saw, you know, in cartoons or whatever, uh, stuff that my neighborhood friends and I were into, would end up doing drawings for them. And then it just became a thing in school, like growing up, like Mitch is, Mitch is good at drawing, so he should mm-hmm. do all the creative work of whatever we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to do you like get a, kind of inducted as the yeah. neighborhood drawer. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, we all know you're going to grow up and be an artist, so like, will you draw the school mascot for the yearbook? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, I guess. And I feel like so many artists have the like origin story of drawing being like a first love. Yeah. That's kind of like an on-ramp for creativity in a lot of different forms. Um, and I know you specifically have like... Uh, used a lot of different materials in your work. So I wonder what like the landmarks are in kind of your growth as an artist that like kind of signaled like this b- departure from the origin of drawing mm-hmm. into these different forms. I mean, I definitely think I would, it would be college going, going to the university of Louisville and it was 
at the time, um, very selective uh, height art institute application process was the only major at the university you had to apply to basically say that was your major. Mm-hmm. And in the application was submit a portfolio of artwork. And at the time, that's all I did was drawing. So I submitted all this drawing and, you know, it was, I look back, I still have the stuff. It's not very good, but I, I guess it was good enough to get in. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, you know, you take foundations classes and I, I took a 3D uh, studio class, three-dimensional, and which I, w- I dreaded because I was like, I don't know anything about sculpture. I don't mm-hmm. like sculpture. Um, but the instructor, Shay Rhodes, was the department head of the glass program. So he was teaching this foundations class. Part of our class met at the glass studios. And so he just really like opened my mind to the third dimension of art making art. Mm. And I think one of the first things we made was like an inflatable, like lazy boy chair. And it was like, okay, we've now we made something that was like larger than we are. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm kind of, was that like a collaborative project? Yeah, it was like a group assignment, Mm -hmm. but I just, yeah, I remember this thing is bigger than all of us and that's really cool Mm -hmm. and we made it and so I don't think I even ever looked back at drawing again for a while. Wow. So, yeah, I think uh, it would be interesting. So um, you went from drawing to like your mind being kind of exploded into three-dimensional work. Um, what were the first materials that you were kind of drawn to from there? Um, glass. because Glass immediately, yeah. Almost immediately because part of our class was in the same building which was off campus away from the actual like art building um being down there um we we used a lot of like recycled glass in that assignment in those assignments um and we did some mold making which eventually went into like the hot glass studio but just waiting for class to start and watching the other students blow glass in the same building mm-hmm. was kind of like, okay, I want to do that next semester. I want to sign up for that class. And I really like was never interested in ceramics or painting or I really still am not interested in painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> although I like looking at it. I don't like painting myself. But uh, yeah, just seeing the glass process I was and making things out of glass that wasn't blown glass, but it was, you know, you're using equipment to like cut and polish and grind glass Mm -hmm. it was kind of like okay this is different and i can kind of get into this very process driven stuff Mm -hmm. and like that craftsmanship piece of like the perfectionism that was like present in um um your origin story there like i could see that like totally informing this kind of you know being immediately enthralled by this process that um is it sometimes collaborative in large mm-hmm. parts collaborative. Um, I wonder if you can kind of like walk us through um, like the um, basics of glass blowing of like the processes that you use most frequently in your yeah, work. Yeah, so there's a lot, you talk about perfectionism and kind of chasing that like craftsmanship. I mean, that's all that glass is about in the on the large scale is refinement, polish, and like perfection and symmetry. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you can trace glass back, um, like the Venetian <clears throat> maestros, they're often called during mm-hmm. the Italian Renaissance, like 16th, 17th century, fi- even 15th century. I mean, these guys were making stuff just as good, if not better than people that are making the same stuff today. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone's always chasing that Venetian aesthetic and that perfectionism there because really it comes down to like how good you are with your fingers and your hands mm. um, and timing and, you know, just understanding the material. You, what, but what was the question? Breakdown. Um, yeah. Walking us through the process. Yeah. So uh, what I liked about the process that drew me in was just the first, the collaborative teamwork aspect of it. Um, and the fact that it's like kind of a sport at the same time. Mm. So, uh, with the process of glass, you know, 
I was taught to always work with other people, which I think now because of the pandemic, which is really scary in my opinion, uh, you see a lot of people working by themselves. Mm-hmm. It's very limiting. And not to say that people can't. There's really, really talented people that can blow glass by themselves at the furnace because there's different styles, different mm-hmm. uh, methods of blowing glass. Uh, one would be like flame working at with a torch, um, which I never, I've only tried once. I just, it's a different type of dexterity with your fingers that I don't really like. Not mm-hmm. that I wouldn't get into it more. But uh, with furnace blowing, <clears throat> like I said, you got the teamwork aspect. So you're instantly, you're already collaborating with somebody else to achieve like a final result, mm-hmm. whether or not you take it on as your own work or, uh, you know, you say it's with the assistance of somebody else is totally up to you and the person you're working with, which is almost unspoken that the assistants never get credited. Mm. It's always the gaffer, the person that's blowing the glass and, and saying it needs to look like this. Mm-hmm. Will you do this? Will you do that? They take almost ownership of the object, but nothing that I have ever made, no object or sculpture I've ever made or vessel uh, was made by myself. Like I had, I have to have somebody else assisting me and that mm-hmm. changes from time to time. So that's like a very number one important part of the process. Um, once you get that kind of figured out, scheduled, coordinated, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything has to be hot. You have to like prepare the studio. Um, you know, really it starts with like a blowpipe, <clears throat> uh, a hollow metal tube. You gather glass out of a furnace like you would gather uh, honey out of a jar. You know, you kind of have to mm-hmm. continuously turn the uh, honey stick, I don't know, dip stick, whatever mm-hmm. you would call it. Uh, you have to continuously turn things to keep the glass on center from preventing uh gravity from you know pulling glass towards the floor um and it's the hardest thing to learn in the whole process i mean it took me three or four years before i actually could turn well and it's fairly (laughs) physically demanding as well yeah yeah i mean once you pick up a blowpipe or you know uh and a metal iron a rod um, you can never stop turning it. I mean, you just mm-hmm. from start to finish. So that's another thing that interests me about glass was it's not like ceramics where you can, I mean, not to say that ceramics is totally like this, but you can't just start something and then go have your cigarette or your coffee and then come mm-hmm. back to it. Um, I mean, if you're really thinking about it, you know, if you want to make a vessel, you got to you got to start it and finish it. And then maybe you can go in between making individual objects go Mm -hmm. do whatever to have your smoke break (laughs) but i like that kind of commitment to Mm -hmm. the form so um you know in school it was always like unheard of if you were on your phone and when i was in school phones were just becoming like smartphone was just becoming a thing that everybody had Mm -hmm. so uh, it wasn't so much of a problem then but now it's always like hey like can you maybe come back to assisting me or to this Mm -hmm. reality or whatever. Um, It's really glass has changed in a lot of ways like that. But um, you gather glass out of the furnace, uh, you blow air through the pipe, which starts to inflate the mass of material. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I mean, there's a few basic uh, setup moves or shapes that you you make out of the glass that you can then make many other many forms Mm -hmm. so in the glass process everything starts the same way Mm -hmm. like your first gather of glass out of the furnace has to be fucking perfect or it's going to set you up down the road to Mm be you know not the greatest piece Mm -hmm. that you're making um and so at what point in that um trajectory did you decide what you're making yeah, uh, so sometimes before the first gather, sometimes mm-hmm. after like the third gather, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, you kind of build the uh, larger pieces up in layers mm-hmm. of gathers. So yeah, it's uh, I I like to think of it as, and I've written about this before, making or performing music where, you know, like a painter or whatever might go to their studio their same studio for years and paint, you know, on the same easel or whatever. Mm-hmm. With glass, it's like, what studio am I going to be in? What equipment do they have? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that I can use to make whatever I need to make or whatever I want to make. Or sometimes you're, you're limited by what equipment is available and what you can make or, or more importantly, how you can make it. And I imagine with glass, like, um, you're fairly limited by like what the process is and what the material is. And then as you gain familiarity and mastery of the material, you can, you know, stretch that to its limits Mm -hmm. literally right (laughs) um but you're kind of working within a system that has very concrete boundaries and yeah exactly and and there's very uh i like to say there's no rules in art making but there's definitely like some rules in glass that you Mm -hmm. kind of have to commit to uh just to allow the material to kind of work for you because Mm -hmm. it's a you know, not only are you collaborating with somebody else to assist you and to make stuff, but you're also collaborating with the glass as a material because it has its own, you know, say it will do things that you don't want it to do Mm -hmm. and it will behave in ways you don't want it to behave. And a lot of the time, like I said, it's start to finish. You get like one shot to mess it up or make it. And if you mess it up and then you got to like start all over from the beginning, which you know, making something out of clear glass, which is traditionally at any glass studio, that's what they're melting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you apply color or whatever pattern work to that clear glass. Um, it's almost like a binder. I would sometimes you think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but if you have like color or something invested in the work and you mess it up, then you're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not only am I wasting the, you know, flame that's being very costly being uh, coming out coming out of the natural gas lines mm-hmm. uh you're wasting your time that you you know did in preparing all of that not mm-hmm. really wasting it i mean a lot of the time you can chalk it up to research and experimentation <laughs> right. especially if you don't know what you're doing but after a certain amount of time you want to get it right um mm-hmm. and you mess it up then you're kind of like shit i always have this attitude that in the, especially in the class studio, if something gets fucked up, whether it's by my own hands or an assistant's hands, because, you know, glass breaks. That's, mm-hmm. that's I always say you have to break it in order to make it. <laughs> um, if s- something messes up, regardless of who did it, I like to, you know, just keep a level head and be like, you know what? Let's not sweat it. Mm-hmm. I went to school. I went to grad school and there was an undergrad student who I won't name because he's really good at class now. (laughs) Uh, And he's teaching, yeah, he's teaching classes and all all kinds of good stuff. Um, He used to get so upset at himself for fucking things up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though he almost set himself up for disaster in a lot of ways. Um, (laughs) That he would like scream, he would yell, he would throw tools. He would like take everything nice that he made. And I remember one day he just like threw it all in the dumpster. Very, very like... It was very performative, mm. and I think that was a release for him. But I'm always like, I don't. It doesn't need to go to that extreme, you mm-hmm. know. Just because you forgot to do one step of the process or something, and it messed everything else up. Um, but <clears throat> it's not. I don't like tears in the hot shop, and I don't like um, <laughs> you know anger in the hot shop. Mm-hmm. It's just definitely like a like I I kind of told you um, before we started talking. That when I was in undergrad at the University of Louisville, it was like being in a glass monastery. It was a very mm-hmm. specific way. And being angry was not like something mm-hmm. that we were encouraged to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to pick up a pipe and just gather again. Like just make start making something again. And then you look at <clears throat> these Italian maestros everyone likes to call or reference. I mean, these guys... In their heyday, they're probably, let's say they made a hundred goblets and they would probably throw away like 25 of them or 25% of them. So 25, but Mm -hmm. uh, 25% of anything they made, they would throw away because it was either just not good enough for their standards or there was an imperfection or a flaw or something. Mm -hmm. They didn't want their name associated with it or it was just bad, like Mm -hmm. glass you know, you can't make 10 of the same thing. Even though you can try, you can use molds, you can do whatever. Mm-hmm. Each thing is not going to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It's that handmade 
elephant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious because you actually brought a goblet with you. If you want to talk about kind of like the idea of a goblet in glass blowing and kind of like your practice with it. Yeah, so um, I'll go back to the University of Louisville again because that place was like just so pivotal in my art practice, but we were not um, encouraged to make vessels. We were encouraged to make sculpture, mm. to make artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't really learn how to blow glass, though, without learning how to make vessels. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you always learn how to make is a cup, like a cylinder, just very basic. Um, and then from there, you can get into like bottles and bowls and plates. Those are all kind of the come from the same family. But then those are just kind of singular forms. Um Everyone, because when they see the process of goblet making, everyone, especially young glassmakers, they're always like, I want to make goblets. That's all I want to do. So you see a lot of people in the glass community just chasing that aesthetic and that form. Because um, this goblet I'm holding right here, clear glass, um, is made in one, two, three, four, five different parts. And all those parts come together. So you have to have a mastery of just the complete basic skills to be able to join all these parts together and to do it um, so that it's thin, Mm. very, very thin. That is the kind of dream of chasing goblet making is to make thin glass and make it very well. Mm. Um, Especially with thin glass, once you mess it up, there is no going back. You just have to start over. But that's kind of the bittersweetness of making goblets and making thin glasses. You can make a lot of stuff in a short amount of time because it's mm-hmm. only just a little bit of material that you're using. Mm-hmm. But so with the goblet, <clears throat> with anything you make in glass, you always make the bottom first. And then you switch the axis of it to make the lip or the opening of the vessel. So you start with the cup shape. Uh, which it doesn't always look like this. You usually are focused on the bottom end of it. And then you add a a little bit of glass. You add a stem, um, which is another like blown bubble um, after the cup shape. Blow the cup, add the bit, blow the stem. Somebody else actually makes the stem, blows it up, and then um, uh, drops it basically onto this. It's kind of really difficult to talk about the glass process without just demoing it or Mm -hmm, showing it, mm -hmm. but I'm going to do my best. Um, And then the same thing with the foot. Somebody, your assistant makes the foot, brings it to you. And you, as the gaffer, as the glass maker, are the one that shapes the final form of it or opens up the foot to this form. And then Mm -hmm. um, you stick a little bit of glass here on another rod, break the glass free from the blowpipe, and so once the bottom is created, then you can focus on the mm-hmm. on the drinking end, the lip end, which really at this point, it's just a final move. And uh, so like I was talking earlier about limitations of the studio, and especially when it comes to goblet making, there's so many different ways to make a goblet. Um, it's just kind of what anyone's comfortable doing. And for a long time, many years, I practiced this style where you make the parts separately and then stick them together um, kind of at the last moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But really no studio in Baltimore is set up well for you to do it that way. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't make them for a while just because I was like, you know, uh, there's this one piece of equipment, it's called a garage. Mm -hmm. It's basically where you quote unquote park the glass parts that you've made. Um, They just stay hot in a little chamber that actually looks like a car garage. There's a couple doors. Mm-hmm. One side's hotter than the other side uh, because of where the location of the flame is. And you park your stuff in there, and then you can go, like, go have your cigarette or your lunch, and then in the afternoon you stick all the parts together and you've made all these goblets. It's, mm-hmm. it's one way to do it. Um, but this one that I'm holding, uh, because of the studio I've been working out of and the need to make some, not only just to like get my hands back used to making thin glass uh, but also just to you know I love and we could talk about this more too but the idea of a gift to Mm -hmm. me this is like the ultimate gift where I 
place no value on this because it's taken me so many years to get good at it that mm. I'm going to be like, you know what, here, this is for you. Like, mm. so trying to sell something is a whole other conversation, but, mm-hmm. but anyways, back to the making the form, um, I discovered that it's way easier to make it the harder way, which is to make it all connected at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, you stick all the parts together in succession as opposed to making them separately and then sticking them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worked really well. I just, I was like thinking when I, I made several of them this summer, I was like, why didn't I, why haven't I been doing this this way in this studio uh, before? Like it just made so much sense. And, you know, it's the other people's studios is, um, if I had my own studio, you know, it'd be set up a very specific way right. to make things my way. And so you always have to adapt, which mm-hmm. I also like just adapting my skills. It pushes me as a glassmaker, um, which I'm really more invested in pushing my, the limits of my craft, uh, than I am in actually making things mm-hmm. like the final mm-hmm. form of things, mm-hmm. figuring out how to draw the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm curious, like, um, cause you started talking about, um, the practical functional objects that serve a purpose in a daily life. Um, and then that poses a contrast to, you know, the first glass blowing, um, you know, academic environment that you were in where you weren't, um, supposed to make vessels. You were supposed to make sculpture. Yeah, if you made too many veg- uh, vegetables, I'm sorry, <laughs> vessels. If you made too many vessels, uh, you would basically go on what was called VR vessel restriction, which wow. was, uh, you know, like a finger waving thing that would happen to you by our professor. And that's so interesting to me because I know, you know, your background as an artist, like you're a glass blower, and that is, um, I think what you're most active in mm. these days, but you've also had periods of your creativity where, um, you know, you kind of stepped away from glass, even if it was a kind of through line on a back burner. Right. So yeah. like you have a relationship to both the kind of, you know, art world sculpture, you know, existing for, um, you know, conceptual, like, uh, like gallery environments versus the kind of domestic space that mm-hmm. uh, vessels can can fill. Um, and so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that tension between those two things. Yeah, in I mean, your I went to grad school for glass uh, right after undergrad. There was like a semester in between that was off. And uh, I I just knew I loved glass and I wanted to teach glass and wanted to explore my work more. And I was ready to do that at a younger age. Even I remember everyone was like, you need more. One lady was like, you need more life experience mm-hmm. before you I go got to that grad too. school. <laughs> and I was like, I think you need life. Uh, it worked out. The only thing was um, I got, I went to a school that I didn't even apply to go to. I got invited to go to, mm-hmm. and I uh, was waitlisted at some other schools and n- nothing came through. So I was like, All right, well, now's my chance. If they want me to come, I'm going to take this opportunity. And uh, I blew a lot of glass in two years. Uh, I had like 10 hours a week of the studio time to myself, which was kind of unheard of. Mm -hmm. Whereas like the beginner students only had three hours outside of class that they shared with three other or two other people. Um, But anyways, uh, and in grad school, I was making bigger sculpture. I was like avoiding the pedestal at all costs. Mm-hmm. making bigger sculpture that it required you know metal fabrication and glass making all these actually if you want to make something big you got to really plan it out and uh, know what you're doing and make parts in order uh what do i mean like a little component of a big sculpture and i made a few things that were cool very moody very kind of almost depressing actually <laughs> and uh i was like yeah, i don't i don't i need something faster and, mm. um, again, you know, vessel making can be really fast, but it's not something I, I didn't want to just make vessels mm-hmm. cause I could do that without adding all of this conceptual weight to the work. So my advisors, you know, they pushed me in a direction of just using really everyday materials, tape, cardboard, you know, all this stuff that you mm-hmm. could just, you know, instead of taking four months to make this sculpture out of glass and metal, you know, take four hours to make something the same size, which, uh, you know, that was like, okay. 
started doing that more, more installation-based stuff. More. And this was still while you were in grad school for glass. Yeah, yeah, more, mm -hmm. you know, it's just making, I was really making atmospheres and environments that I wanted people to walk into. Um, uh, doing some video stuff, which I've always done video work since high school, you know, even before then, like just recording stuff with my friends and making dumb videos. Uh, but it became actually always just a side kick to my um, practice, no matter what I was making. And then I left the first round of grad school because I, I have two MFAs, like a crazy person. <laughs> left my first round kind of feeling unfulfilled uh, because I never really merged, and I still haven't to this day, or maybe I have, It's we'll, we'll find out, uh, that quick kind of fast-paced style of making things uh, and making things big. Um, I never merged it with a glass making component. So my MFA show was a, it was called waiting room. And I kept in, you know, during the last year of my grad first year or first round of grad school, I always had people come into the studio, you know, they sit down and they're like, Oh, it's, this is weird going on in here. I liked that kind of, thing so i just mm -hmm. basically shifted it down into the gallery uh for the show and it was called waiting room like i said mm. so you just kind of came in and there's all this stuff on the walls you know it, it was uh a fake waiting room and actually it was right outside and I, I never wrote about this or anything or talked with anybody about this actually but it was very fun to me that it was right outside the gallery director's office was my installation. Mm -hmm. um, there was like a little hallway and I really wanted to make a curtain so that that was like what you were in the waiting room for was to go. But uh, <laughs> and I don't think it ever came up. Um, but I left that program not merging those things and I was like, you know what? I just really need to kind of step, take a step away from glass because it was like polluting my mind. Uh, how do I merge these two parts of my practice? Mm -hmm. And really i didn't want to i mean that was just kind of the thing it was just all these pressures from you know committee advisors mm. uh and also that first round of grad school there was just no conceptual or theoretical you know classes there mm -hmm. was a pedagogy class but it was you know an easy a <laughs> and there was no rigor uh mm -hmm. it was just all like i said it just made a ton of stuff and some of it just ended up in the garbage in the dumpster when I moved out of the studio and uh, I never took photos of it, which is like bad. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to move away from Northwest Ohio because it was dreadful and small and uh, lots of corn. <laughs> and I wanted to go to grad school again because I, like, I just didn't feel, you know, like I delved deep enough in my mind mm -hmm. and my practice. And uh, I knew I wanted to go to the East coast. I knew I wanted to go to the city, a big city. And, uh, then, you know, UMBC, uh, the intermediate digital art program just came up in my email one day. It was like, Hey, are you interested in this program or apply whatever? And I was like, oh, I'll take a shot in the dark. And then I got accepted and mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I guess I'm moving to Baltimore. Never in my wildest dreams that I think I would be moving to Baltimore. But here mm -hmm. I was moving to the East Coast. I was like, kind of knew I was going that way. And when I was in my second round of grad school, it was like all theory, all the time to begin with. Lots of writing, lots of why are you doing this? You better figure out the answer to it and present it to us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it write was, a 50 page paper about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so anytime now I hear people you know, have to write like 1500 words for their thesis statement. I'm just mm -hmm. like, man, you don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm like offended because I had to come up with 5000 words about mm -hmm. what it is that I do, which was really good. It like made me look at, um, you know, things about myself and about my work in ways that I hadn't before. And also living in a city and mm -hmm. um, being in the city all the time, just the grit and the grime of Baltimore uh, made me think about it actually made me think about glass conceptually in ways that I had not before, but in no way did it inform at that time um, making glass because I was still teaching glass 
in the city. I was still making glass. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't part of my kind of conceptual art practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what was part of it was sculpture, was making Mm -hmm. sculptural work that was not on the pedestal, but still kind of talking about questions and issues of display, Mm -hmm. which is very, very much something I'm interested in. Uh, And just making sculpture that was, again, bigger than me. And uh, I remember getting feedback one day at a graduate review where someone said, "Uh, the sculpture is interesting, but it's not practical. Could you make it more practical? Or how would you make it more practical? And so for me, that was like functional. How would the work be functional? Mm -hmm. Which you can, you know, there's all different ways to talk about how that relates to glass and how glass has informed that functional aspect of making sculpture out of you know wood or whatever materials Mm -hmm. cheap cheapo materials um (laughs) and i made some kind of like socially uh functional work like you know the better living kiosk was a sculpture i made where you know in the city there's all these emergency telephone poles and uh Sometimes you go to them and the phone isn't even there. Like it's been cut off from the thing Mm -hmm. just because of vandalism or there's, it doesn't even work or, you know, maybe nobody answers the phone when you go to pick it up and you're in an emergency. (laughs) So I was interested in like circumventing all of that. Um, And what if there was a kiosk like that where there was a chair attached to it, which meant that somebody was sitting there at all times. So if you had an emergency, there was actually somebody there. Mm. for you so i got to play with the sculpture in that way like uh it was almost just like making giant models of Mm -hmm. kind of these like utopian driven ideas and and works and so the the work became functional and so in my my second thesis show for my degree uh a lot of the work was like pretty polished uh kind of impractical Mm-hmm. but functional because it was sculpture. It was impractical because mm-hmm. it had to have this kind of aesthetic component to it. I, I was just thinking of how can it be functional, but also just not be absurd at the same time, mm-hmm. making something very, very impractical to use. Mm-hmm. Um, Utopian, <clears throat> right? It is a place that doesn't exist. <laughs> so right. <laughs> right. So um, that's what led to like the broom with three handles Mm-hmm. A giant broom that takes three people to operate. So again, like there's all these little notes of glass being glass making being in the background of the mm-hmm. process and informing the work. Like just, you know, a lot of the work that ended up in that degree was cleaning oriented or street mm-hmm. oriented or just dirt oriented. And um, all the stuff that you never see in glass making because it's all about, like I said earlier, perfectionism and being pristine uh, no mark of the hand. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm always interested now in bringing that kind of stuff into the world of glass. Um, how can you make the glass look dirty or mm. not, you know, perfect or pristine, mm-hmm. uh, which has led to some other work. But um, that final thesis work, just to end on that note, um, really being taking glass out of my practice uh, and making just just sculpture with whatever materials and not letting the material be the focal point, but the form Mm -hmm. and that impracticality and being playful with it. Uh, Getting to do all of that worked to my advantage because it helped me figure what, figure out what it was that I wanted to make with glass when I I just felt like there was like a return I needed to make, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, in a strange way it ended up with vessel making like um bringing those ideas of impracticality into the vessel world um Mm. which that's what Mm -hmm. i brought this one here for to talk about as well yeah can you introduce us to like how does that resonate in your practice now yeah so after grad school um was still making glass uh but also glass is expensive Mm -hmm. really fucking expensive practice i was almost just like so many times that I was just, did I say, I don't want to do this anymore because I, don't, I can't keep up with it. it Cost too mm-hmm. much money, too much risk involved. But it pushed me to keep my mind on the dollar and on the clock, 
to mm-hmm. crank work out and not fail and make stuff that I could just turn around and sell that would pay for that. Basically, you know, I, I don't make any money off of glass. I never have mm-hmm. since I've started. I've probably, you know, sold less than 25 pieces of glass in my day. And, uh, it's only ever paid for it made, you know, paid for itself, like mm-hmm. allowed me to keep doing it, which is enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that gift thing too later, but, uh, coming out of that program, making that impractical stuff, coming back to glass, everybody can make this goblet. Um, and if you hold it up to anybody else, you probably wouldn't be able to pick out whose was whose. Mm-hmm. Maybe a really, really, really trained eye could do it. Um, but it's fun to try. Mm-hmm. It pushes your skills and your dexterity, which is the most important thing. Like I said, it's there's a sport aspect to it. Um, so I always say goblets for sport. You do it for the sport of it. Um, you should not be ever attached to making one of these things and um, being like, oh, this is the perfect one. You should be able to be like, this is the perfect one. You know, let's mm-hmm. break it and make some more. <laughs> um, but I wanted, the gla- the goblet is such a form in glass. It's like the equivalent of the teapot and ceramics. It's just this mm-hmm. heightened form um, that requires a lot of skill to make. Um, and I wanted, everyone always <clears throat> kind of, not everyone, but a lot of glassmakers end up bringing their own interpretation of that form to the table. And um, I wanted to make glass in a sculptural way. So there's like blowing thin glass and and all these parts, which is very technical. But there's also um, this one here that I brought. Um, It's all one piece of glass. Never were these ever separate pieces. Uh, Maybe in order to get the pattern, together but actually sculpting this form which is what i would say that i did as opposed to making it in these separate parts um i used my hand and like a wad of wet newspaper which is a very technical tool in the glass studio mm-hmm. ancient tool um wet wad of paper which is kind of like the closest you'll get to actually manipulating it with your fingers mm. um but using that to shape the glass and some other tools too um, kind of very intuitively, I know that I want to set myself up with this pattern, this color. But when I started this, I didn't know it was going to be this kind of martini shape. Mm-hmm. That's just what happened because of the order of events. Um, but I wanted to make an impractical. I mean, goblets are already impractical, mm-hmm. especially when you look at those Venetian uh, Renaissance ones. I mean, some of the stems are just so big and ornate that it's like, who's going to use that <laughs> besides somebody with like puffy shirt? <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I wanted to make an impractical goblet where, um, you know, you have the traditional thin, very light goblet. I wanted one to be really heavy and clunky. So I, um, I'm always in between titles for everything. Mm-hmm. Artists should have free reign to like, you know, Actually, the work from 2009 <laughs> is not called that. Uh-huh. It's called this now. It's still um, yours. You can still yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, those are the interesting rules that no one ever talks about. But uh, I started calling these clunkies just because they're big and heavy. And never, ever have I actually used one to consume a beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sculpture to me, first and foremost. Um, and I a lot lately have... And delineating between objects and sculpture and like things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is like, this is kind of like all of that all in one. Um, but this came out because, uh, came about because I wanted to make impractical objects, but they also had a function, you know, mm-hmm. an observed function, which is that vessel form. And um, I was looking at uh, influences from outside of glass because just looking at glass um, I recently saw an interview, somebody talk about this, like I fucking hate a lot of glass and a lot of the aesthetics of glass. Mm. Like when you go to your local glass studio and I even make this stuff for other people, um, where you make an ornament or a pumpkin or, or any of that cringe stuff, mm-hmm. let's call it cringe, cringy tchotchke <laughs> stuff. Uh-huh. Now, not that I'm against tchotchkes, but that stuff, um, 
I don't like a lot of the aesthetics and I think it takes hating uh, the aesthetics of it to be able to come to the medium and say, what's something that I can make that I like that is not typical that you don't see every day. And really it comes down to like things, things that, that only you can make. Can make. Not mm. that other people couldn't make them, but like, especially with glass, um, people make a lot of the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. And I never really wanted to do that. I wanted to make things each thing was a unique thing. So uh, while I might make many goblets, they don't all look blue and martini shaped with us, you know, three, whatever, tiered, four tiered stem. Mm-hmm. But I'll do this same process over and over and see which, how much variety I can make out of that. Um, and that is fun. That is, that's where the imp- improvisation the uh, intuition comes in mm-hmm. i mean you have to have a mastery of the technique and the skill in order to uh it's like a jazz musician said charlie parker maybe you know learn how to master your instrument and then forget all of that shit and just play mm-hmm. that's uh, so i was talking earlier about influences outside of glass this record right here uh like I said earlier, glass is kind of like music, performing music for me. Um, it's got to, you got to be in the studio mm-hmm. or in the performance area, whatever if you want to call it, because glass is a performance. You have to have all your parts and your players set up, and then you can just start making whatever. Mm-hmm. And this um, composer, John Zorn, I came across him uh, and just looking at improvised jazz players or jazz musicians that do, that practice that. And, you know, there's all the classics but um, I'm such a punk at heart and I love <laughs> mm-hmm. hardcore music too that this guy fused basically hardcore and jazz in a way I'd never heard before. And um, <clears throat> so actually just, I was really into, um, what's his name? David Hammonds. Love David Hammonds artwork. Very ready-made, you know, uh, sculptural stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, some process-oriented stuff. Too, but it's very, there's also it makes his concept concept and all that very well. And so I was chasing his work. He had a show called Ornette Coleman, I think at Hauser and Worth in L.A. And so I was like, okay, who is that Ornette Coleman? I gotta look him up. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, very famous jazz musician. Uh, early popular record was The Shape of Jazz to Come was the title, and it was just improvised jazz. He kind of blew it. Uh, not to say he was responsible for starting it, because I don't think you can say that um, because of the nature of jazz, but he blew up free jazz. Mm-hmm. And so in researching free jazz, I came across John Zorn, came across this album in particular, Spy vs. Spy, where John Zorn, Tim Byrne, and all these other, um, Joey Baron, all these other musicians play the music of John Zorn or not, I'm John. I'm sorry. They play the music of Ornette Coleman, mm. but they play it like twice as fast. And Ornette already plays fast. So there's a really good documentary or some clips of it on YouTube where you can see uh, they're practicing playing this, these, these songs. And uh, John Zorn, he's plays saxophone. He says to the bass player, he's like, all right, let's play it at this speed. And the bass player says, I, I can't play it that fast. And he goes, don't worry, neither can we. <laughs> well, let's just try and play it that fast. Uh-huh. So the fact that it was sloppy, that they, they couldn't hit all the notes on time, that they were mm-hmm. just going for it, that really was like, whoa, I want to translate that into the glass studio, mm. which is how these chunky goblets, another title I, I have for the series is Tooth Chippers because they're <laughs> so thick. Uh-huh. Um, and tooth chipping is just like a common fear in the glass studio with like, you know, blowing it on the pipes of people. Mm. If you mishandle it right, you could lose a tooth. There's always that kind mm. of er, er, myth about glass that way. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I would listen to this while making glass um, back in 2020, right before everything hit with COVID. I started making these and it was just like, I want to, I want a lot of heavy glass. I want to like slop it around and mm-hmm. make something i don't know what the final form is going to look like mm-hmm. but i just want to do it and try and kind of rush through it even though it's not what you want to do with glass mm-hmm. but i wanted all these outside influences to make something that you wouldn't normally see in glass so that's how these like thick heavy goblets came mm-hmm. to be um i wanted to 
dissociate myself with the traditional way of making a goblet and make something impractical. Mm -hmm. um, we're running a little short on time, but I do want to contrast that like kind of like chunky impractical action of glass with the shit kicker yes. sculpture um, that we talked about before. So I wonder if you could introduce us to shit kicker what and kind of um, the concept behind it. Yeah. Uh, so these goblets. So, okay, this record, again, they're covering the music of Ornette Coleman. Something very important to me. And I think this goes back as I've been thinking of it all the way to the early days when I was drawing and tracing my own drawings, um, tracing somebody else's artwork or, uh, or performing a song that somebody else wrote, a cover song, is a concept that's really core to my practice over my, the entirety of my art-making days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so these goblets, these thick goblets, are cover songs as I like to call them, of, you know, the traditional way of making a goblet. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, uh, this opened up my, you know, I was like, I want to make cover songs, more cover songs. I want to make love songs in glass. I want, and I want to make, um, just reinterpret things and, mm -hmm. and put my own spin on it. So that shit kicker sculpture, which is effectively a blown glass leg form, um, that is in my wife's boot, mm -hmm. uh, crusty, like work boot, mm -hmm. um, shit kicker, which is like a, a common term for work boots. Um, and so you have the beauty of that. <clears throat> and that, that work is a love song to my wife, I mean, mm -hmm. and I think she knows that, <laughs> uh, but she wasn't around when I was making it. She was back home in Okinawa and, uh, so it was just a way for me to connect with her in that regard. And, um, <clears throat> it was definitely a love song that whole, that whole time period when I was making things, uh, in glass as cover songs, as love songs was very much like my restart or my reset to a, the way I approached glass after all the years of grad school, all the rigorous years of grad school, mm -hmm. um, and pretty much ever since then, I've been doing that, making cover songs or making love songs. So with that work, <clears throat> you have the heightened aesthetic, the beauty of the intricate um, cane work in the glass, the lace uh, lines mm -hmm. of the white glass uh, that make up the, the leg form, which just has the immediate reference to a sock or like a, you know... A, pantyhoe or something mm -hmm. and i like that kind of sexiness of the glass um paired against the crustiness of that work boot which mm -hmm. is almost like taboo first of all to to merge like a glass a beautiful glass thing with like a found ready-made object not many people do that and um mm -hmm. it's always about just the glass so it was a way for me to like raise the middle finger up to the glass art world mm -hmm. a little bit and be like, uh, let's, you know, let's make the glass look a little ugly. It also just like uh, sheds light on the other side of like the polished result, mm -hmm. right? Like I think you and I, we've talked to her as well on this podcast, right? Both have really rigorous um, craft, right? That requires a work ethic. It requires iteration. It requires um, a lot from you to get to a point where, you mm -hmm. know, you can reapproach it conceptually, right? Or feel um, comfortable um, experimenting within yeah. the structure of the process. Yeah, yeah. Experimentation is... Uh, core to glass making just in the days that it the American studio glass movement started in the 60s it was just a bunch of hippies in a garage or in several garages not knowing anything about what they were doing a total experimentation but they mm -hmm. knew about this new thing that they could do it at home or mm -hmm. uh, you know in a community space um, or at a school, I just even. I love the idea of um, Imi wearing her work boots, like making ceramics, like probably helping you blow glass, right? And mm -hmm. then you ultimately making this form and like sticking it in the boot that was like there as a through line. For yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of it. <laughs> it. Many days where she aggravated because 
that actual shit kicker sculpture has been in a few shows to my surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whenever it's gone for a long period of time, she's always <laughs> like, when am, are you going to buy me a new pair of boots or like to replace the ones I don't have? I can't wear <laughs> so because they're love in the show. song turned annoying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Earworm. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, sorry. Very sorry. But, um, I would like to make more stuff like that. I guess really you could call it more socks because that's kind of what I was trying to make was like a sock mm. in glass using the, the language of glass and the processes of glass to make a sculptural form. <clears throat> cool. Well, thank you so much for making the time to yeah. stop by to talk about your practice. Thanks so much. Yeah, I feel like we just hit the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I but know. <laughs> there's so much. Um, but it, thank you for having me and I don't, always get to talk about my process like this so it, you know i'm sure i'll be like thinking about new things mm-hmm. because well, maybe it. you can be a repeat guest oh, in the yeah. future for images and links to the artwork we discuss on the show follow us on instagram at this is not my magnum opus subscribe to us on apple podcasts or follow us on spotify you can also leave us a rating or add a review we'd love to hear your thoughts Music for this podcast was written and performed by Frederick's resident shoegaze band, TV. That's T-E-E-V-E-E, period. This Is Not My Magnum Opus is proud to be part of the Could Be Better podcast network. Executive produced by Chris Perry and Colin McGuire of Could Be Better. This show is made possible by a Maryland State Arts Council creativity grant. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week. Do you like change? Do you love the familiar smells of your bedroom studio? Listen no further, friends, because the Could Be Better podcast is back and as disappointing as ever. Indeed, Chris, this season we are changing almost absolutely nothing. The show will drop on Thursdays and we hope to include guests. We'll also shamelessly plug any and all events of which we are part. So like and follow wherever you listen to podcasts or check out our website, www.couldbebettermeh.com or let's pretend this never happened. I know I will. Me too. And do not forget this could be better.